You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 289, The Battle of Green Spring. We left off last week with the British Army in Virginia under General Charles Cornwallis. After linking up with the army under William Phillips and Benedict Arnold, Cornwallis had an army of over 7,000 men under his command. He began a series of raids across Virginia, including a raid on Governor Thomas Jefferson's home at Monticello. Then, near the end of June, Cornwallis received orders from General Henry Clinton to withdraw back to the coast and to send half of his army to New York, as well as cease all offensive operations in Virginia. When it looked like the British Army was on the verge of taking control of Virginia, this may sound like a bizarre change of plans. Certainly, to General Cornwallis, it was frustrating and confusing. So, we need to take a step back and look at this from the perspective of General Clinton in New York. General Clinton had taken command of British forces in America following General Howe's recall in 1778. This also coincided with France's entry into the war, resulting in London recalling much of the army in America to other parts of the empire. British Secretary of State George Germain ordered Clinton at that time to evacuate Philadelphia and to consolidate the army at New York. This was done to free up the army and navy for actions elsewhere in the world. Clinton spent the next few years trying to get more soldiers to go back on the offensive, but with little luck. His main offensive focus was in the South, where he took Savannah, Georgia, and then Charleston, South Carolina. After the British capture of Charleston in the spring of 1780, Clinton returned to New York, leaving General Cornwallis in charge of the South. Clinton told Cornwallis that his primary mission was to secure South Carolina and Georgia, leaving open the possibility of moving the war into North Carolina only once he had secured those southern colonies. So Clinton expected Cornwallis to focus on the pacification of South Carolina. This would ensure the control of South Carolina as well as Georgia and East Florida. A strong British presence in South Carolina would encourage Loyalists to turn out and support the king, ending the war there. Then, and only then, did Cornwallis have the option to move his forces into North Carolina. Of course, Cornwallis moved into North Carolina while South Carolina was still very much in play. By taking British attention away from South Carolina, Cornwallis had allowed the local Patriot militia to continue their contests there and prevent many Loyalists from turning out. Loyalists were reluctant to join the British Army if they were not certain the British Army was there to stay, because they knew once the British left, they and their property would be subject to the wrath of the Patriots. So by leaving South Carolina for North Carolina, and eventually Virginia, Cornwallis had undermined Clinton's plans 
to secure South Carolina for Britain. Cornwallis had not bothered to keep his commander in New York appraised of his actions. Clinton did not receive reports from Cornwallis for months during 1781. Instead, Cornwallis was sending reports directly to Secretary Germain in London. Clinton had considered Cornwallis a backstabber ever since the time in 1776 that Cornwallis reported to then-General Howe some things that Clinton had said about Howe in a fit of pique. With Cornwallis communicating directly with Germain, he was once again undermining Clinton. Clinton certainly had an interest in Virginia. He had first deployed General Alexander Leslie there in 1780, then General Arnold, and then General Phillips. But Clinton never planned to secure Virginia under British rule. The point of those deployments was to disrupt Virginia from sending soldiers and supplies to support the war effort in the Carolinas. These efforts were supposed to relieve the pressure on Cornwallis as he focused on the destruction of Nathaniel Greene's Continentals and the local militia. When General Phillips had some success in Virginia, he and Clinton discussed the idea of defeating the small army under Lafayette, then moving into Maryland and possibly launching some new raids on Philadelphia. Much of this, however, again, was simply to distract the enemy so that Cornwallis could continue his work to pacify the Carolinas. After learning that Cornwallis had abandoned the Carolinas and moved to Virginia, none of this really made any sense to Clinton. What was the point of raids in Maryland and Pennsylvania to distract the enemy in the South if the British were no longer fighting in the South? At this point, Clinton seemed not to know what to do next. For a time, he considered going forward with the raids into Maryland and Pennsylvania with Cornwallis, but Cornwallis opposed that and still wanted to focus on Virginia. Some of the news coming out of the South indicated that things were not as chaotic as feared. Lord Ralden's victory at Hobkirk Hill gave the British leadership hope that the South could remain secure, even in Cornwallis's absence. Clinton was also concerned about his own position in New York. He still had a French army at Newport, Rhode Island under General Rochambeau, along with the main Continental Army under General Washington in northern New Jersey. If Clinton sent too much of his army to assist Cornwallis, he risked being attacked and losing New York City, especially if the Navy did not provide proper backing. In July 1781, Admiral Marriott Arbuthnot had resigned his command and returned to Britain. The new commander, Admiral Thomas Graves, did not get along particularly well with Clinton. Further, Clinton had intelligence that a new French fleet under Admiral de Grasse was sailing for America, destination unknown. Clinton feared that it could be part of an effort to capture New York. This potential threat to New York is what caused Clinton to recall about half of Cornwallis's army in Virginia. Clinton believed that Cornwallis would still have enough men to deal with the small Continental Army in Virginia under Lafayette, and would give the British New York more reinforcements if the French and Americans attacked there. Clinton's spies had reported to him that Washington and Rochambeau had met and conferred on just such a plan a few weeks earlier. In mid-June, Clinton wrote out orders for Cornwallis to take a more defensive posture and send half his army to New York. Cornwallis received these letters a few weeks later, near the end of June. Now, meanwhile, the Continentals had been caught off guard by how weak Virginia's defenses really were. 
General Washington had initially deployed Lafayette to Virginia to take on Benedict Arnold's small British force. The enemy army grew to over 7,000 with the arrival of armies under Generals Phillips and Cornwallis. Lafayette knew he would have no chance in a battle and withdrew his men north and west to avoid a direct confrontation. Washington provided some additional support by sending General Anthony Wayne with about 800 soldiers from the Pennsylvania line to join Lafayette in Virginia. Wayne had been fighting under Washington for several years and had a reputation as an aggressive leader who would go after the enemy. But Wayne commanded the Pennsylvania line. These were the same soldiers who had mutinied back in January. Although a political compromise had brought these men back into service without much punishment, Wayne knew he might still have problems. The Pennsylvania soldiers grumbled about having to bail out Virginia when it was well known that Virginia had never come close to meeting its enlistment obligations for the Continental Army and didn't seem to want to turn out to defend itself. Pennsylvania, who had seen years of war, considered it appropriate that the Virginians dig themselves out of the current British attack. More significantly, the soldiers had not been paid for months. Despite promises made after the January mutiny, the men remained without basics. This led to a refusal to march to Virginia until their demands were met. The army stopped at York, Pennsylvania and would not move south. General Wayne was in no mood to compromise again with the Pennsylvania line, and he took pretty decisive action. He determined the 12 leaders of the current delay. He held immediate court-martials of all 12 men, Seven of the men were shot by firing squad. One of the men who was not killed immediately in the volley was ordered bayoneted to death. And General Wayne literally had to hold a pistol to the executioner's head before he would finish the job of bayoneting this man to death. Wayne then ordered the five remaining ringleaders hanged. All of the men were buried, and Wayne ordered the army to continue its march to Virginia. So the army got on the move again, but the men marched slowly, only eight or nine miles per day. Wayne also had to keep his men under guard, lest they tried to desert, and he even had to confiscate all the ammunition from the soldiers, lest they fire on their own officers. Wayne's army crossed into Virginia in early June, and it linked up with Lafayette about a week later. By that time, the British raid on Charlottesville was over, and Cornwallis was slowly withdrawing his forces back to Williamsburg. Even after Lafayette and Wayne came together, their combined Continental Army consisted of less than 2,000 soldiers. Lafayette was also taking heavy criticism from the Virginia legislature for failure to engage with the British before Wayne's arrival, also for allowing the British to take Richmond and to raid Charlottesville, among other places throughout the state. Never mind that the British under Cornwallis had an army of between seven and 8,000 soldiers, and that the Virginia militia had refused to turn out in numbers that were anything close to the numbers needed to challenge the invaders. That, however, finally began to change. The legislature met in June, and that's when they chose General Thomas Nelson to serve as the new governor. They gave Nelson near-dictatorial powers. They also passed laws that allowed for the confiscation of property for men opposing the turnout of militia and the death penalty for deserters. They also guaranteed militia the same pay as Continental soldiers and reduced militia terms from three months to two months. 
these moves finally encouraged many locals to turn out for militia duty. The 450 Virginia Continentals that General von Steuben had taken out of state also returned. Their commander remained in North Carolina on a sickbed. Steuben had been following orders to link up with General Greene in South Carolina before receiving counter orders to return to Virginia. So Steuben sent his army back to Virginia while he personally remained in North Carolina to recuperate. The result was that Lafayette was able to gather a combined army that was much larger. Estimates differ on the actual size. I've seen estimates ranging from 4,000 to 5,500 men. It was still smaller than the enemy army under Cornwallis, but it was respectable enough to put up a fight. Lafayette gave Wayne command of an advance force of the army to dog the rear of the British withdrawal. While it was clear that Cornwallis was already pulling back at a leisurely pace, Lafayette at least wanted to make it appear that the Continentals were forcing the withdrawal. By the end of June, Cornwallis had reached Williamsburg and had received Clinton's request to send 3,000 soldiers back to New York. The British leadership was still debating whether to use Portsmouth or Yorktown as its base of operations. Because Yorktown did not have defenses yet, and because Cornwallis was about to lose half of his army to a deployment in New York, he chose to move to Portsmouth. Now, this move would require shuttling his army from the north side of the James River to the south side for the final march to Portsmouth. The danger for the British was being caught by an enemy attack while in the middle of transporting their army across the river. And that was exactly what Lafayette hoped to do. General Wayne marched his advance force of about 900 Continentals toward the British rear guard. Lafayette personally joined Wayne's advance force to scout out the enemy, even though the main Continental Army and the militia were still miles back from the advance force. Cornwallis had begun moving his army across the James River using the Jamestown Ferry, which is just southwest of Williamsburg. On the morning of July 6th, Wayne marched his advance force toward the ferry, hoping to attack the British rear guard before the entire army could cross the river. The American advance encountered British pickets early that afternoon at the Green Spring Plantation, about five miles west of Williamsburg, and about two miles north of Jamestown Ferry. Wayne deployed his men, consisting of about 500 men of the Pennsylvania line, 200 riflemen, and a few pieces of light artillery, to attack the British rear guard. He held a couple of hundred men in reserve, and with the main army still several hours march behind them. Meanwhile, Lafayette rode down to the James River to get a better view of the battle. Wayne's advance pushed back the British pickets, and pushed forward to harass the enemy rear. Lafayette got to a position where he could observe the enemy. He saw lines of redcoats in the swamps near where Wayne was approaching. He realized immediately, It's a trap! Cornwallis had only sent his baggage across the river. He still had his entire army of over 7,000 men hidden in position to take on Wayne's advance force of about 700. Lafayette, however, was too far away from Wayne to give him any warning. Around 5 p.m., Wayne's line seized an abandoned British cannon on the road. That was the signal the British had left to begin their attack. British artillery opened up on Wayne's line with canister and grape shot, followed by a bayonet charge by infantry. General Wayne feared that a withdrawal would 
quickly turn into a rout, much like the Paoli Massacre, where his men would just be run down and slaughtered. So, rather than retreat, Wayne ordered his own artillery to fire, then ordered his own men to charge into the superior British lines. This act of bravado caught the British by surprise and halted the British advance. Cornwallis then personally led a new British charge into the American lines, finally forcing the American withdrawal. By this time, Lafayette had caught up with Wayne's forces, only to have his horse shot out from under him. The Americans withdrew, losing two of their field cannon. British reports indicate a loss of five officers and 70 men, while Lafayette reported losing about 140. The following morning, Cornwallis began really ferrying his army across the river. Bannister Tarleton scouted the enemy camp about six miles away and recommended an attack, but Cornwallis had already been to this party. He knew that the Americans would likely just withdraw further upriver and avoid a battle. Cornwallis had already sent his baggage to Portsmouth, and he had no desire to start chasing the Continentals back across Virginia. Cornwallis was correct that Lafayette was in no mood for another battle. Lafayette withdrew the Continentals back to Richmond. Wayne's forces established themselves just south of the city at Westover. Lafayette, in his reports, was critical of Wayne's charge into a superior enemy at Green Spring. Other generals, including General Muhlenberg, who had been with the main army in Virginia, also called Wayne's charge impetuous. The public, however, seemed enthralled by the bravado. The New Jersey Gazette referred to the general as Mad Anthony for his actions. Lafayette also received praise from Virginians for forcing the British back to the coast. He had to release most of his militia to return home, thus shrinking his available army back to under 2,000 Continentals and only a handful of militia. Cornwallis unleashed Tarleton for a few raids in August, but no more major offensives came from the British side. Meanwhile, Lafayette began writing to Washington about the lack of men, food, and equipment, and his desire to rejoin Washington in New Jersey. Lafayette still believed that there was going to be a much larger action in New York in the coming months, and he wanted to be a part of that. Washington, however, ordered Lafayette to remain in Virginia and keep the British bottled up if possible, until a larger force could come to Virginia and deal with them. On July 8th, with most of his army across the river and on their way to Portsmouth, General Cornwallis received new orders from General Clinton. Clinton canceled his earlier request to take 3,000 soldiers back to New York and instead suggested that Cornwallis use them to raid Philadelphia. They would join up with another force sent by Clinton from New York. When Cornwallis arrived in Portsmouth a few days later, he received several more letters from Clinton, including one that the general had written back in May, disapproving of Cornwallis's decision to leave the Carolinas and go to Virginia. With a flurry of letters from Clinton, each of which seemed to describe a contradictory strategy, Cornwallis was unsure what to do. Part of his problem was that Secretary Germain had written to Clinton, telling him not to hamstring Cornwallis in Virginia. Germain thought Clinton was behaving too timidly and saw Cornwallis as an active general who was actually accomplishing things. Cornwallis opposed the suggested raid on Philadelphia in May and still opposed it now. But since these were the most recent orders he had received, he began making plans to put part of his army on transports 
to move up the Chesapeake Bay, presumably landing near where General Howe had landed at Head of Elk years earlier on his advance to Philadelphia. On July 20th, the first transport carrying Colonel Simcoe's Queen's Rangers had boarded a transport. Then another letter arrived from Clinton calling off the entire plan to raid Philadelphia. The following day, Cornwallis received another letter from Clinton telling him to secure a Chesapeake port for the British Navy. He told Cornwallis to use his discretion on whether he should keep the entire army for that purpose or send half of them back to New York. In some ways, this option seemed like a trap. If Cornwallis kept the entire army and then the Americans attacked New York, Clinton could blame Cornwallis for failing to send the requested reinforcements. Nevertheless, Cornwallis opted to keep his entire army, and he chose to build his naval port at Yorktown rather than Portsmouth. He believed the location was more defensible and would give his army more opportunities to forage for food in the area around Williamsburg. Having his entire army would give him the workforce necessary to build the defenses at Yorktown. So Cornwallis spent a hot August destroying and evacuating the base at Portsmouth and digging his new defenses at Yorktown. Now, next week, we're going to head back up to New York to take a closer look at General Washington's plans to attack the British in Manhattan. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Joe Kelsey and Patrick LeBeau. I really appreciate everyone who can support this podcast via an ongoing contribution or a one-time donation via PayPal or Venmo. Remember that if you do make any contribution as little as $2 a month, you get access to commercial-free versions of this podcast, and my supporters at $10 a month or higher also get a Revolutionary War magnet each month, each one with a different flag from the American Revolution. A reminder for everyone that our next American Revolution Roundtable will take place on December 13th, 2023. This is just a few days before the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, the Sester Centennial, our topic at the roundtable is going to be the Boston Tea Party and how tea played a role in starting the American Revolution. The roundtable event takes place on Zoom. Anyone is welcome to join. There's no cost. If you're on my mailing list, you'll get a link. 
If you're not on my mailing list, well, why not? Get on my mailing list. But if you're not, you can simply email me and ask me to send you a link. Our last event, discussing Benedict Arnold, was a great one. I hope you can join us for this upcoming one about the Boston Tea Party on December 13th. As I said, please look for the link or email me if you need a copy of it. In this week's episode, I tried to cover the confusion that was taking place between General Clinton in New York, General Cornwallis in Virginia, and Secretary Germain in London. Everyone seemed to be on a completely different page about how to proceed with war plans, and no one seemed to be communicating well with each other. We've seen a mess like this before. Remember when General Howe was the military commander in North America, and how Germain and General Burgoyne all seemed to have different ideas about how to prosecute the war in 1777, and ended up losing big at Saratoga. They don't seem to have learned from these problems, and appear to be making these same mistakes again in 1781. Hopefully we all know the outcome of this is going to be Yorktown, which is coming up soon as a future episode. At this point, though, we're beginning to see an increase in American forces in Virginia with the arrival of General Anthony Wayne. But there's still no really large commitment of the bulk of Continental forces to Virginia. General Greene is still wreaking havoc down in the Carolinas, and General Washington remains with the main army up in New York and New Jersey. I did want to mention that my use of the nickname Mad Anthony Wayne in the main show, I implied that it was the New Jersey Gazette's use of Mad Anthony that originated the use of that nickname. I did read a few sources that said this was the case, but several others attribute the nickname to an incident that happened a few months earlier while Wayne was still in winter camp at Morristown. One of Wayne's spies, a soldier that went by the name Jemmy the Rover to some, and also the Commodore, got arrested for disorderly conduct. Now, according to these sources, Jemmy tried to get out of the arrest by telling officials that he was a friend of General Wayne. When officials tried to confirm with Wayne, he not only refused to help with the release of Jemmy, but said that he would give the soldier 29 lashes. When Jemmy heard this, he said that the general was mad and started calling him Mad Anthony. The nickname began circulating around camp. The New Jersey article that references Wayne's nickname after his charge at Green Spring was the first published use of the name, as far as we know. So, what likely happened was that the nickname was spreading around camp for a few months before the newspapers picked it up. Since I haven't recommended a Wayne biography yet, I thought, why not now? My recommendation this week is Unlikely General, Mad Anthony Wayne and the Battle for America by Mary Stockwell. This book just came out a few years ago. One frustration I had with the book is that it is not laid out in chronological order. It also focuses more on Wayne's military efforts in the Northwest Territories after the war rather than his Revolutionary War service. But it is a good, solid Wayne biography. The author, Stockwell, grew up in Ohio, which may be one reason why her book emphasizes this part of Wayne's life. She was a history professor who left teaching to become a full-time writer. So, if you want to read more about Wayne, you may want to get Unlikely Soldier by Mary Stockwell. If you want to read more specifically about this week's battle at Green Spring, you'll want to check out my online recommendation. It's an old article from the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography called 
Affair Near James Island or the Battle of Green Spring by Charles E. Hatch Jr. This article was first published in 1945, but it is available online in the Lee Family Digital Archive, which maintains the papers of the Lee Family. This includes people like Richard Henry Lee and Late Horse Harry Lee. As always, I've included direct links to the article on my blog and website. My question today comes from Jason Dallas, who asks, Would the soldiers of the revolution be okay with political parties as we know them today? Well, Jason, it's really impossible to say what men of the 18th century would think of 21st century politics. The world really has changed in so many ways since then. And even if it were possible to get an answer from them, I'm not sure they would know enough about the modern world to have a good answer for it. We do know that there were not really any political parties either in Britain or the U.S. during the 18th century. We sometimes talk about Tories and Whigs as political parties, but they were not organized in any way that we would call a party today. They were more just groups of like-minded men who generally supported one another, but in a very informal way. You also have to remember that in the 18th century, only about 3% of the population could vote in Britain. Because voting was not private, smaller landowners who may have still had the right to vote pretty much had to vote the way their more powerful lords wanted or they could find themselves out of favor. Let's face it, the entire British system at this time was built around enhancing favor with those who were wealthier and more politically powerful than you. As a result, there really weren't free and fair elections as we know them today, and so political parties didn't have a role in Britain until, say, the 1830s, when voting was greatly expanded through a number of political reforms. So the U.S. had no good model for political parties when it began to rule itself. Many of the new states saw political parties form rather quickly. They were nowhere near as organized or powerful as we see today. As they were in Britain, parties started out largely as just groups of like-minded men who shared common views on various policies. As politics developed, we know that several of the first leaders eschewed political parties. George Washington famously spoke out against parties, which he called factions, in his farewell address as president. Washington, of course, tried to rule by consensus and worked to unify the country by supporting various policies from different factions. He saw this as necessary as a way of creating a United States from a group of very disparate states. His successor, John Adams, similarly refused to join a party in hopes of remaining above politics and being a true national leader. But while political leaders tried to transcend factions, other founders dove right into organizing. Jefferson and Madison formed what eventually became the Democratic Party. Alexander Hamilton became the unofficial head of the Federalist Party. The point of these parties was to try to find and elect officials who supported certain policies. It became apparent from almost the beginning that such organization would be critical to getting the policies that each side wanted into law. So parties were pretty much here to stay right from the beginning. Of course, the Federalists who supported more of the wealthy interests seemed to fail as votes spread to many more commoners. The Federalists eventually mostly formed into the Whig Party, and when the Whig Party faded, they eventually moved into the Republican Party by the 1850s. 
as I said, I can't really see what the people of this time would think of parties today, but everyone did seem to gravitate to political parties almost from the beginning. As we see the rise of parties in almost every democracy around the world, it seems that parties are a pretty important part of organizing politics in a democratic environment. Of course, when politicians put partisan advantage above national interest, well, I think that's what George Washington was warning us about. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.